turn to the book of Genesis, chapter number 39. Genesis, chapter number 39. And as you're turning there, I wanted to say thank you for praying for me. I really do appreciate it. I know I I got several text messages and uh, uh, different uh, notes of encouragement letting me know that people were praying for me. uh, For those of you that don't know, giving you a little bit of detail. on Saturday morning after I uh, picked up my parents from uh, the airport on Friday, spent some time with them, and then on Saturday morning, probably at about four o'clock in the morning, I woke up, and you know that feeling when you're pre-sick? You know, the, feel, the pre-sick feeling, not the sick feeling, but the pre-sick feeling when you begin to ache and you can feel it. Uh, man, I felt that, and I just, I said, Lord, please, not, not this weekend. If there's any weekend I don't want to be sick, it's this weekend. Uh, but nonetheless, I woke up, and I figured that uh, I was kind of in a hot sweat, and so I was going to take a shower. And as I got into the shower, I looked down, and I noticed my feet were like bright purple, uh, very purple. And so uh, I knew something was wrong, and then not even a couple of seconds after that, I realized that I was going to lose consciousness so I sat down, laid down, and I was out for about 20 minutes. Uh, about 20 minutes, I lost consciousness. I know it was 20 minutes because I know what time I got in the shower, and then when I came to and got out, uh, about uh, 45 minutes had passed. And so uh, anyways, I was able to lie down, and I, uh, my wife took me the next morning. We went to the uh, minor emergency clinic, and uh, I was feeling not as bad as I felt uh, that night, but I was still feeling pretty rough, and so we were able to go, and they said, if you've lost consciousness, you need to go to the ER, and so it was just precautionary, it wasn't a big deal, but we went, and they got some fluid in me, and did some tests, and so forth, and so nonetheless, uh, we really don't know what it was, they tested me for influenza, stomach flu, and so forth, it was none of that, so it was probably just some sort of stomach bug, I know Brother Chip had something, Brother Alex, and so it might have just been what was going around, and I'm not as much of a man as they are, and wasn't able to handle it, and so, but... I really do appreciate you praying for me. Uh, I, was, I was very disappointed to miss uh, being at church. Uh, Sundays are my favorite day of the week. I love to be here, but Sunday, this past Sunday, was a special Sunday uh, for this church, celebrating God's faithfulness over 33 years, but more particularly, I was thankful uh, for my dad to be here. He got the opportunity to preach, and I did get to listen to his messages. Now you understand where I get long-winded preaching from. Uh, my dad... I do appreciate him being here. The joke's kind of been, and pastors referenced this a couple of times, but uh, he said a couple of weeks ago that I was nervous. If you want to miss, don't miss Wednesday night after the, the revival because uh, we're going to get to see Lamar sweat bullets uh, as he's preaching in front of his dad. I want you to know I've been waiting for a long time for the opportunity to preach at my dad. It's been a long time coming, so I'm not nervous tonight. I'm excited to get a preach at my, I mean, to my dad, or to everybody. Um, no, I am, I'm excited uh, to be back from the land of the living, but uh, I do want to say this. Uh, I am thankful for the opportunity to preach, and uh, I haven't said this thus far, but uh, this has been a help to me as a young man trying to desire to do what the Lord wants me to do, feel God's calling upon my life. Uh, in a very real sense, you guys are guinea pigs, you're uh, test dummies, and allowing the, uh, me the opportunity to preach to you, I don't take it lightly, but having my dad here tonight, I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't uh, be right not to say something about that. Uh, everything that I am uh, in the ministry, if I am anything, it is, it is ultimately because of the Lord, and I want to give him credit, but it's because of the investment of my dad and my parents, uh, my grandparents. I have goodly heritage, and I am so thankful for God's uh, uh, heritage that he's given me, and so I'm actually excited tonight to get a preach while my dad's here. Uh, I am a little bit nervous, but I'm always nervous. I remember I was probably like 2006 when I preached at camp for the first time. Remember that? And I remember being nervous, and I said, Dad, I'm nervous, and he said this. He said, Son, the day you stop being nervous when you go to the pulpit is the day you need to put your Bible down and stop preaching, because that means you're going up with anything but the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And that's the kind of heritage that I have. My dad has invested a lot into me, and so I'm thankful for my parents, my mom as well. I can't say enough about my mom and her faithfulness over the years and being a helpmeet for my dad. And so I'm excited. Uh, Let's get into Genesis, chapter number 39. Last week, uh, let me ask this question. I ask it every week. How many of you, this is your first night here in this series? Just you, right? I think it's just you. Okay, uh, uh, the... uh, uh, What's your name again? I've just been sick so long, I forgot. McTurnan, okay, that's right. All right, so most of you have been here, and so I won't do a lot of prep work, but uh, last week we got to study the first part of Genesis chapter number 39, and we looked at the two tests that Joseph had to face in light of the first section of Genesis chapter number 39. We saw the test of prosperity. 
Joseph was 27 years old, rather 27 years young, and uh, he was, went from the pit all the way to the uh, high prominence in the uh, position of authority in Potiphar's house. And uh, Joseph was brought to the test of prosperity, but we learned last week that you can't keep God's man down. He passed the test of prosperity, didn't let him get to his head, didn't begin to take credit for what God was doing and gave credit to God. And so he didn't, test, uh, he didn't uh, fail the test of prosperity, but... We learned also that with the test of prosperity, usually in Scripture comes the test of purity. And we learned last week that Joseph faced the test of of purity in regards to Potiphar's wife, sexual purity, and Potiphar's wife coming to uh, Joseph there in, in the first part of Genesis chapter number 39. But again, we see that Joseph passed the test with flying colors. And so last week we looked at the first section, but we really didn't talk much about what it cost Joseph. We learned that he, had, uh, he didn't have the power over temptation. We learned that. We learned that rather his wisdom was found in avoiding the source of temptation. And that through avoiding the source of temptation, he was able to have power over temptation. Because Joseph knew this about himself. He's Joseph. And if I put myself in a position, I'm going to fail. How many of you can concur and agree with Joseph? If we put ourselves in the position of temptation, we're going to fail. So we ought to avoid the source of temptation. But we really didn't talk about what it cost Joseph. We're going to talk about that tonight. Let's look at verse number 13, and we'll read down through verse number 23. It says, And it came to pass, when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand, and was fled forth, that she called unto the men of her house, and spake unto them, saying, See, uh, he hath brought in a Hebrew unto us to mock us. He came in unto me to lie with me, and I cried with a loud voice, and it came to pass, when he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment with me and fled and got him out. And she laid up his garment by her until his Lord came home. And she spake unto him according to these words, saying, The Hebrew servant, which thou hast brought unto us, came in unto me to mock me. And it came to pass, as I lifted up my voice and cried, that he left his garment with me and fled out. And it came to pass when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spake unto him, saying, After this manner did thy servant to me, that his wrath was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound. And he was there in the prison, but the Lord was with Joseph. Say amen. The Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all that the prisoners uh, that were in the prison. And whatsoever they did there, it was, uh, he was the doer of it. Verse 23, the keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand because the Lord was with him. And that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Tonight, for just a few moments, I'd like to talk to you about this subject, about this topic in the life of Joseph in our series through the life of Joseph, a story of God's sovereignty. I'd like to talk to you about this topic in light of 2018, what we're going through today. How can we think biblically in such an unbiblical world? How can we think biblically in such an unbiblical world? Thinking biblically in an unbiblical world, how did Joseph, there in the land of Egypt, How did he have the courage, the strength, and the wisdom, the discernment to be able to refute the advancements of Potiphar, yes, but ultimately the advances of Satan. Satan had his crosshairs there on the life of Joseph. How could Joseph think biblically in such an unbiblical world? I'd like us to look at that for a few moments tonight. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on tonight's message. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you. Uh, Lord, for what you've done over the weekend, Lord, I'm so excited to hear the stories about how you met with us in the services and how your spirit was present amongst your people. Uh, As we look back at the 33 years, we look at nothing that man has done but what you have done through God's man. We're thankful for the investment of many men, but namely our pastor, Pastor Farinella. Many years ago, you put this vision upon his heart and he pioneered this work, Lord, and his agenda was not to build a church of great uh, numbers, Lord, he wasn't desiring to build a great work, but he wanted to build your work. And whatever entailed, that was what he wanted to do, Lord. And Lord, uh, our, our church is a product of his investment and your faithfulness. We're thankful for that. 
uh, all throughout this series, we've seen your hand moving in the life of Joseph, and you've allowed me, I believe, in my own personal life to be able to glean application and, and to look at uh, things that I can apply to my own personal life. There's not been a single message that I've preached that you haven't first spoken to me, and this week is no exception. Uh, how can we think biblically in such an unbiblical world? Uh, I mean, every day, I, I'm afforded the opportunity to work at Wooden Valley Baptist Church, but no doubt there are many in this room that they work in a carnal, wicked place, and maybe they go to school. And, and they go to public school, and Lord, it, there's, it's all around us. It's oppressing us every which way. We're looking at the wickedness, and last week we talked about it. We've become desensitized to sin. How can we think biblically in an unbiblical world? Joseph was in a similar situation, Lord, and I think that you helped him apply some basic principles that helped him have discernment, and uh, he applied some basic principles that helped him think biblically and helped him make biblical decisions. I, I pray that you'd help me tonight. I pray that I'd speak slowly, that you'd fill me with your power. If anything, I need your power tonight. Uh, thank you, Lord, for bringing me uh, through this physical, uh, 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 the physical illness this past week, Lord. I'm so thankful uh, that uh, your will was accomplished, and for some reason you didn't want me to be here. Uh, Lord, I pray that you just help me as I preach tonight, as I get my energy back, that you'd fill me with energy uh, physically, but uh, ultimately I need your power tonight. I pray that you'd be with me tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for reading with me. All right, by way of introduction, I'd like to read you this statement. So I want you to listen. I know I'm getting right into it, but I want you to listen to this statement. If your goals are good, no one is hurt emotionally or physically, and your motivation is love, then you are free to do whatever is necessary to achieve your dreams and reach your full potential. How do you like that statement? You know where I got that from? I got that from my management training back in 2014. I worked for Starbucks for six years. And uh, back in 2014, they had a seminar and they brought several people. They paid to have people flown out and paid them to come and to teach us on these different areas of management. And this is where I got this statement. And do you know what this paid professional's area of expertise was? You want to take a guess? Ethics. Did you read the statement? His area of expertise was ethics, and here was his premise. I want you to listen to it. Ethics are situational and heavily dependent upon all parties involved, variables such as expectations, resources, and instructions, and upon the ability of persons or persons involved to carry out said task. Now, I went over some of your heads, so I want you to listen. I want you to listen to the statement because I'm going to build off of this tonight. Here was his premise. Ethics are situational and heavily dependent upon all parties involved, variables such as expectations, resources, and instructions, and upon the ability of the person or persons involved to carry out said task. And this was the ridiculous example that he gave to try to prove his point. He said, I want you to imagine with me that uh, there are seven people, uh, man, I'm talking about Brother, uh, Brother Schellenberger being out at sea, okay? So imagine there are seven people out at sea and they're drowning. There's seven people drowning out at sea and there's a life raft. And the life raft is given to the seven people drowning out at sea, but they can only save six. If seven people get onto the boat, the boat sinks and everybody dies. And he said this, is it ethical is it morally acceptable for the majority six to exclude the seventh in order to save the six? And ultimately, this was kind of the premise that he was trying to derive of, off of. Is it for the greater good for us to exclude the seventh man and allow him to die in order to save the other six? It's a great question. Ultimately, this was what he was trying to say. Ethics are based on one's own moral compass. Is that popular? That's popular teaching in the world today. It's extremely worldly thinking, but it's incredibly unbiblical. Would you agree with that? Incredibly unbiblical. Aren't you so glad that we don't have to psychoanalyze every single situation and circumstance in life in order to find out what is morally acceptable? God already did that when he gave us his word, amen? When God gave us the word of God, he did not have to, we don't have to psychoanalyze every situation that we're in and try to decipher, man, I wonder what the right decision is and I wonder what the wrong decision is. It's already recorded in scripture. God gave us his word for that purpose. It is the moral compass. The only moral compass that we will ever need is the word of God. And I said that with full confidence that everybody would agree. You'd all say amen. The Bible is the final authority and it's our moral compass. Say amen. We all agree with that statement. Can I tell you something? In the world we live in today, it is getting more and more difficult to think biblically in such an unbiblical world. 
We agree with that statement that the Bible is our foundation. But when we go to work on Monday, when we go to school on Monday, and again, like I said in my prayer, we are faced with these situations and these circumstances. We live in a carnal, wicked world. Do I need to convince anybody of that? The world that we live in is absolutely wicked to the core. In it, it is extremely hard for us to think biblically when the world is so incredibly unbiblical. It's wicked. We talked about it last week, but so often Christians working in a secular environment or going into the public school realm, we've become desensitized to sin. And therefore, our moral compass, it's very difficult to be able to think biblically in such an unbiblical world. Do you know why that is? You know why that is? There's this new, there's this new, you'll know when I make the statement, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, but there's this new wave of thinking. It's very popular amongst people my age in the millennial movement, but no doubt it's popular just as a popular uh, consensus in the world today, but this thing called relative truth. Have you ever heard that? Relative truth. Uh, This is what a millennial will say. I I hear him say it all the time on Facebook and so forth. Speak your truth. You ever heard that before? Why don't you speak your truth? What's true to you? What's true to you? You know, you're in, you're in a circumstance or a situation, uh, what's true to you? What, 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 I want you to speak your truth, live out your truth according to your own moral, moral compass. Here's the definition, I looked it up. The, the definition of relative truth. Truth relativism is the doctrine that there are no absolute truths. That truth is always relative to some particular frame or reference such as a language or a culture. That's cultural relativism. Sounds absolutely like what the world teaches, but again, could we all agree, extremely unbiblical, completely contrary to scripture. I want you to think about this. As we look at our text in Genesis chapter number 39, what would relative truth look like in Joseph's situation? I want you to think about that. Put yourself in Joseph's position. Last week, we learned a little bit about the power of temptation. We learned about the power of temptation, namely the power of the temptation of prosperity and the temptation of purity. We learned about both of those things as Joseph faced that. Jesus, or excuse me, Satan hits Joseph where it hurts the most. He hits him right there in the middle of his pride and offers him the position of authority to rise into prominence and, and, and offers him the uh, test of prosperity, but then even more extreme than that, the test of purity. Thankfully, we also learned how to have the power over temptation. And what God can do with a man who cares more about his integrity than his reputation. But what would have happened if Joseph would have applied the thinking of Egypt in that day? Remember, Joseph is in Egypt, and Egypt is a picture of what? It's a picture of the world. Why is that? Because the uh, the world is wicked today, but the reason we reference Egypt as a picture of the world is because, if you know anything about Scripture, Egypt was a wicked place. Egypt was absolutely wicked. He was approached by the wife of Potiphar, and she makes these advances. And rejecting the advances of Potiphar's wife would mean that Joseph's progress wouldn't only be hindered, but it would be completely stopped. Joseph is on this, he's on this incline, and the more that Joseph prospers, the higher he begins to rise into prominence. Again, we know that Joseph is given this vision in Genesis chapter number 34 by God. God says, you're going to arise, you're going to rise to a great area of prominence, and so Joseph knows that about himself. Matter of fact, that's what got him in trouble really in the first place was sharing those visions with his brothers, but nonetheless, he knows what God's trying to do in his life, so the higher that Joseph begins to rise, the more uh, maybe that reality becomes... Uh, the more that that, that uh, vision becomes a reality in the life of Joseph. And so no doubt, the higher he climbs, the more, he, the more sensitive he becomes to the decisions that he's making. But this decision, wouldn't just, it wouldn't just plateau. Do you know what I'm trying to say? He's trying to get here and he's rising. It wouldn't just plateau. This decision, compl- it's like one step forward, two steps back. It completely removed the seemingly, completely removed the progression of God's plan for Joseph's life. Joseph, here's what relative truth says. Joseph What feels right? Joseph, what is it going to cost you? Joseph, what is it going to benefit you the most in the outcome? Those are the questions that relative truth would lead Joseph to ask. What does your moral compass say is ethical? What does your moral compass say is right for Joseph to do in his environment and his situation? There's one major problem amongst many with that state of mind. Isaiah chapter 55, in verse number 7, it says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts 
uh, are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Verse number nine, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways, that is God's ways, higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know what that verse is telling us? That first section, it says, let the wicked forsake his way. Let the wicked forsake his way. In other words, if left to ourselves in our carnal state, what we can derive as moral is actually the exact opposite according to the word of God. It's wicked. Let the wicked say, let the wicked forsake his ways. What does that last part say? But don't worry. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. In other words, his thoughts are ethical. His thoughts are right. Joseph understood that truth was not relative, but absolute. Remember, Joseph was a man of integrity, even at the cost of his reputation. So Joseph had to come to this conclusion. How can I think biblically in an unbiblical world? That's the question I want us to look at tonight. How can we think biblically in such an unbiblical world? A few things I'd like us to notice tonight in light of our text. If you're taking notes, number one, I want you to notice the new moral code. The new moral code. This has less to do with Joseph's day and more to do with our day. It's going to be a brief point, but I want us to touch it because we're going to come back to it at the end. Uh, But uh, there's a new moral code being promoted in our nation today. In 1963, an Anglican minister named John A.T. Robinson wrote a book entitled Honest to God. In this book, there was a chapter entitled The New Morality. Robinson's view or uh, perspective on situational ethics gained a huge following when he gave a series of lectures at Liverpool Cathedral in Liverpool, England, and his argument was this. I want you to listen. The old morality was a perversion of the New Testament since it advocated a legalistic code of laws rather than an adherence to the law of Christ's love. That was the premise of his teaching. And there was a man that listened to his teaching and was heavily influenced by his teaching. A professor named Joseph Fletcher, who shared the points of view regarding situational ethics, added in his own series of lectures at the Episcopal Theological School of Cambridge, Mass., this thought. And it sounds an awful lot like I led with in regards to my management training at Starbucks. Here it is. If no one is harmed, then ethics are based on your situation. It was a humanistic philosophy based on the premise that man is inerrantly good and that if given the right environment, he would always make the right and loving choices. Doesn't that make you just feel all warm and fuzzy inside to know that we are inerrantly good? I know that what you hear on Sunday mornings at this church is very contrary, but actually, according to Mr. Fletcher, man is inerrantly good. We have the indwelling in regards to our characteristics. We're naturally going to be good. Doesn't that make you feel great? We're actually not as bad as we thought we were, as bad as the Bible says that we are. We're actually inerrantly good. Man is inerrantly good and will always make the right choices if given the right environment. There's one problem with Mr. Fletcher's teaching, and here it is. He never met my son. (laughs) Close your ears, Mom. Mr. Fletcher obviously never met my son. Parents, help me. My son, I only have one child, and he's not even two years old yet, but there's one thing that I've learned in the past 18, 20 months of parenting. It does not matter how, how much I give attention to the environment, my son will always find a way to do what is wrong. Every time. Every single time. I mean, I gave great attention to giving him the right environment. I want to make sure we put up a baby gate, and we don't want him to go and mess with the Christmas tree, but you know what? Every single day for the past week, He's gotten a spanking at least five times a day because he goes directly to the Christmas tree. Why? Because he's inherently good. (laughs) He's inherently good and no wicked. That's what my mom thinks, but I can tell you right now, that's contrary to what I know about my son. My son is inherently wicked. Don't say amen, Dad. That's me. (laughs) Amen. I, I hate to burst your bubble, Mr. Fletcher, but... Man is not inerrantly good, but totally wicked. Matter of fact, you take the perfect environment, place man in the midst of it, and you know what you get? Genesis chapter number three. What happens in Genesis chapter number three? Adam and Eve found themselves not just in the right environment, not just in a favorable environment. God looks at his creation and he says, it is good. What God deems as good, man ought to deem as perfect. So they were not in the right environment, not just a favorable environment. They were in a perfect environment and look at the outcome that they brought. 
Why? Because man is inherently good. No, <laughs> because of the depravity of man, because of the sinfulness of man. If left to ourselves, we will always do what is wrong. Can I tell you something? This perverted philosophy of situational ethics really gained a momentum in the 60s. And now in 2018, we are reaping the chaos that it sowed. And uh, we are reaping the corruption that it sowed today. In today's age, we are living out this, this perverted philosophy that they adopted in the early 60s. And it really has been present throughout the course of man. We're always trying to rewrite scripture. We're always trying to read into scripture what we want. And ultimately, we, come, we try to come to the conclusion that we are better than we think the Bible says that we are. Get this, it's not just adopted in the world today, but churches today are starting to adopt this philosophy. Churches today are starting to adopt this outlook on ministry. You say, how so? We stopped calling sin, sin. In churches, we have stopped calling sin, sin. Uh, Things that are clearly lined out in scripture, we don't preach and teach on them. Aren't you thankful for our pastor? Uh, Just a couple of weeks ago, and and he's still on Latter Times Ministries, but do you know, how many of you have only ever gone to this church? This is the church you've ever been a part of. You know how incredibly rare it is for a pastor to take time to preach a five-week series on Calvinism? That's extremely rare. Matter of fact, it's unheard of. And even in a movement like ours, for a pastor to take such great care into preaching not just what he wants to preach, not just preaching what is popular, but preaching what the Bible says, the whole counsel of God, that's not just rare, it's extremely unheard of. That's not very common. Why? That doesn't fit the new moral code. If we hold to those doctrines, we'll lose people. If we preach that message, if we hold those kind of teachings, people are going to get offended. As a father, if I lead my children in that direction, my children are going to buck up against me. It will break fellowship with my children if I hold to what the Bible says. It fits the new moral code, but it's going to, it's going, it's going to rub against me and, and going to cause me to break some relationships. In our text, Joseph did not care about situational ethics and the wicked preferences of Egypt. Why? How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's what he said. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph knew what God thought about the matter. Joseph didn't care about the new moral code. Secondly, and we'll spend most of our time here tonight. Number two, write this down. The Bible moral conviction. The Bible moral conviction. In our story in Genesis chapter number 39, excuse me, Joseph could have applied the new morality to his situation with Potiphar's wife. He could have reasoned that for the greater good, he would commit adultery and fornication with Potiphar's wife so that he could maintain his reputation and position of authority and have a greater impact on his surroundings. And humanly speaking, that made sense. But again, Joseph was a man of integrity, even at the cost of his reputation. He followed some basic principles to ensure that he was right with God, even at the cost of his reputation. He followed some basic principles that cost him dearly, but he knew this. It's more important for me to be in fellowship with God than it is important for me to be in fellowship with man and what man thinks about me. Here are the principles that he followed. Letter A, write this down. Truth is always right no matter where, when, or how. Truth is always right no matter where, when, or how. You say, Lamar, that's such an incredibly basic statement. This is Wednesday night. We're the cream of the crop. We need something a little bit deeper. Practical truth, abused truth. Let's put ourselves in Joseph's situation. I like to do that. When you read the word of God, do you do that? Put yourself in in, in the Bible character situation and try to allow your thinking to see if you would have decided the same decisions uh, or you would have made the same decisions according to what you think and maybe the outcome would have been a little bit different. In regards to Joseph, I want you to do that, not just tonight but in the entire series. Put yourself in the situation of Joseph. What would happen if we put ourselves in Joseph's situation in Genesis chapter number 39? We're there in Potiphar's house, and we were hit with a situation that had heavy consequences regardless of the decision that we made. Again, like we said last week, we are products of our decisions, not our environment. But you know that includes the decisions that we make that are right, but that cost us dearly? We're products of our decisions, and when we make the right decisions, sometimes it's going to cost us dearly. And we are products of our decisions in making those right decisions. Situational ethics in Joseph's situation would promote the motivation behind Joseph's dilemmas to be this. 
What is going to secure my position and reputation? What is going to cost me the least amount of social damage? What is it going to cost me? So often in life, we approach dilemmas and difficult decisions with the very same mindset. What is it going to cost me? Or, or maybe a better way that we phrase it is, what is this going to get me? Making this decision, it, it weighs both ways. And here is, the, here is the pendulum swing. Here is what we use to decipher what we are going to do when life gives us difficult situations. What is this decision going to benefit me the most? Not Joseph. Not Joseph. Joseph knew this. Truth is always right, no matter where, when, or how. Truth is always right, no matter where, when, or how. This was his conviction, and we learned last week that this was his conviction long before Potiphar's wife came calling. I don't want to go off and start preaching last week's message, but understand, we talked about it last week, you better determine some convictions, you better determine about what the Bible says and what you're going to do when Potiphar's wife come, comes calling long before she comes calling. You better determine what you're going to do and have some Bible convictions long before thy dilemmas come. Why? We've proven that we are not good at making decisions in the moment. You better predetermine some convictions before Potiphar's wife comes calling. Otherwise, when those situations come, we cannot be surprised when we fall into temptation. It was a preconceived notion. It was a preconceived condition, a preconceived conviction. Truth is always right no matter where, when, or how. Letter B. It is never right to do wrong in order to get a chance to do right. It is never right to do wrong in order to get a chance to do right. Again, Joseph is faced with this decision, a decision that had great consequences regardless of whether or not he chose to indulge or chose to reject. Situational ethics applied in Joseph's situation might have caused him to ask the following questions. These are different than the questions I asked a moment ago. Listen, is it possible that this temptation came from God? Could giving into this situation give me a bigger platform to promote God's agenda? Is giving into this situation, here it is, for the greater good? Sounds a lot less selfish, doesn't it? Sounds a lot less selfish in the questions we asked a moment ago. Sounds a lot less self-motivated. Sounds like his, his, uh, his positions and his motivation, sounds like his heart's in the right place if he were to ask these questions. The mindset is a lot more dignified. Two problems. Truth is always right, no matter where, when, or how. And it's never right to do wrong in order for a chance to do right. Homosexuality is always a sin. It is always wrong for a man to go into a man and engage in a sexual relationship. Would we agree with that? Absolutely. I don't even like to refer to myself as preacher. Absolutely, Brother Lamar, it's wrong. It is always wrong, no matter where the term follow, uh, falls into it, it's always wrong to kill a baby before it's born. Actually, at any time, it's wrong to kill a baby. Would we agree with that? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, uh, hammer on that. Let's talk about these big hot button issues. Okay, we look at that and we have a metric. We have a limit on how far we're willing to take those tru two truths. Truth is always right no matter where, when, or how. And it is never right to do wrong in order for a chance to do right. We would all agree with that statement to a certain extent. And everybody in this room has a limit on how far they're willing to take it. Myself included. What do you mean, Lamar? Uh, Jesus speaks to his disciples and he says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. Do you know that Jesus was a huge advocate for following the laws of the land? He was a huge advocate of, for following the laws. How many of you sped to church tonight? <laughs> Be honest. How many of you sped uh, at all this week, okay? How many of you have ever intentionally sped your entire life? Okay, Lamar, come on. Go back to talking about homosexuality. Go back to talking about those things. Uh, seriously, we have a limit on how far we're willing to take it. You know what that is? Lack of in uh, integrity and character. I, and I, again, when I point my finger out at you, I've got a two, uh, three fingers and a thumb pointing back at myself. I'm guilty of the same thing. We're willing to take it as far as we want to. You know what it still is? Still situational ethics. It's still a relative truth. My truth says I'll believe in all these hot button issues, but I'm only going to take it so far. January is almost here, tax season. When you file your ta taxes and making deductions that are not really fair... How many of you are guilty? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> it's cheating on your taxes. Okay, but you understand, if I get a bigger tax return, I can give more to the church. Still unethical. Still lacks integrity. And if your decision is based off of what it will benefit you the most, it's still situational ethics. 
See, that's what I'm trying to say. We're, we're willing to apply it to the major issues, man. It's never right to kill a baby, and it's never right to do wrong in order for a chance to do right, homosexual, and all those big hot-button issues, but all of us have a limit on how far we're willing to take that truth. Chick-fil-A accidentally gives you a large instead of a meat. Who put that in there? That's not supposed to be in there. <laughs> we're all willing to take it so far. Uh, this was probably, I don't know, maybe about uh, a year ago, and uh, uh, we were at, um, I think we were at Olive Garden, yeah, we were at Olive Garden, we were with Luke and Melody, and we were fellowshipping there with Luke and Melody, they had their four boys there, and as we were fellowshipping, uh, Luke gives, I don't remember if it was an iPad or gives his phone to Gavin, and gives it to him to play games, Gavin did not ask, he just gives it to him, and we begin to talk, and two or three minutes pass, and I could see Gavin, and big old alligator tears begin to whelp up in Gavin's eyes. And Luke looks over at Gavin, and Gavin, I mean, with his head down to his, uh, uh, looking at the ground, walks up to his dad, and he gives him the device. And his dad said, what's wrong, son? And he said, Dad, I can't play this, but you forgot you grounded me from, from video games. I'm not allowed to play. And a lot of us look at that. That's so elementary, but you know, uh, that's a big deal. You know, what, you know what that is? That's saying right is always right, no matter where, where, or how. And it's never right to do wrong in, quarter, in, in order for a chance to get a chance to do right. Now, who gave him that device? Luke gave him that device. Situations bring, us, you know, bring forth the opportunity to make decisions, and you know what the common, the, the, the common deciding factor is? Is it for the greater good? I mean, after all, Dad gave this to me. Obviously, he's my authority, so obviously he must be okay for me to play this game. But he had integrity and said, no, that's not ethical. Dad grounded me from video games. That means I can't play video games. The new morality says that ethics are based on your situation, resources, and all parties involved. The Bible morality says that truth is always right, no matter where, when, or how. The new morality says that it is okay to indulge in temptation in order, uh, excuse me, for the greater good. The Bible morality says that it is never right to do wrong in order for a chance to do right. Joseph lived by the Bible morality. Where to get him? Where did it get him? Look at verse number 19 in our text. And it came to pass when his master heard the words of his wife, when she spake unto him, saying, After this manner did, the, did thy servant to me, that his wrath was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound, and he was there in the prison. We learned a couple of weeks ago, but Joseph followed the Bible morality in Genesis chapter number 37 when Jacob gives the command to go to Shechem and check on his brothers, follows uh, his, his father's command, goes to Shechem. They're not there, but he knew that he needed to completely comply with the expectations of his father, goes a little farther into the land of Dothan. Where did it get him? They threw him into the pit and sold him into slavery. So the Bible morality and following the Bible morality in Genesis 37 landed Joseph in the pit. Now again, Genesis chapter number 39, he lives by the Bible morality and rejects the advancements of Potiphar's wife at a great cost, and where did it land him? Prison. Landed him in prison. Genesis 37 follows the Bible morality, lands him in the pit. Genesis 39, following the Bible morality again, lands him in prison. Listen, sometimes living by the Bible morality will land you in the darkest place. Sometimes doing things the right way, sometimes doing things according to God's moral compass and doing things according to what God says in Scripture means that you're going to have to suffer the consequences. Sometimes it means that you're not going to rise to prosperity, but you're actually going to take two steps back. Aren't you thankful for verse 21? Look at verse number 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. <laughs> but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keepers of the prison, keeper of the prison. Listen, uh, we talked about this last week, but when you follow the plan of God, you can't keep a good man down. Rather, you can't keep God's man down. Amen. The Lord was with Joseph. So what happens? Same thing that always happens when you follow the plan of God. Look at verse number 22. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners that were in the prison, and whatsoever they did there, he was the doer of it. The keeper of the prison looked not to anything that was under his hand, because the Lord was with him. The Lord was with who? The Lord was with Joseph. And that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. Once again, we find Joseph rising above his circumstances because of his unwavering character and integrity. Because as far as Joseph was concerned... 
truth is always truth, no matter where, when, or how, and it's never right to do wrong in order for a chance to do right. Joseph was not a man of reputation. He was a man of integrity, even at the cost of his reputation. We learned this last week, but uh, uh, your reputation is what man thinks about you, whereas your integrity is what God knows about you. Man looketh on the outward appearance, but God looketh on the heart. Man looketh on the outward appearance, everything that you portray, everything that you live, man looks on, on that and they deem, a, uh, they deem a, an account or a representation of what they believe you to be, that's your reputation. But God looketh at the heart. God knows what's on the inside. Reputation is what man thinks about you, but integrity is what God what? Knows about you. He knows your heart. You know what separates your reputation and your integrity? The Bible moral conviction. What separates the a Bible moral conviction and the new moral code is promoting your integrity and what is biblically correct rather than is what is going to benefit your reputation. Joseph was not interested in situational ethics and the new moral code. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph was unbending in his character even when it cost him everything. So we have the new moral code. We have the Bible moral conviction. And thirdly tonight, I want you to write this down. Applying the Bible moral concepts. Applying the Bible moral concepts. What does Joseph teach us about the new moral code versus the Bible moral conviction? We have a lesson to learn in the life of Joseph, namely in Genesis chapter number 39, and it is this. How are we going to follow after the Bible moral conviction? How are we going to decide if we should follow the Bible moral conviction versus following the new moral code? Letter A, write this down. Prosperity is not a factor of circumstances, but a factor of character. Prosperity is not a factor of circumstances, but a, uh, excuse me, a, but a factor of character. If you read the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter number 39 and come to the conclusion that Joseph was just in the right place at the right time, you are dumber than you look. Hey, I didn't say stupid, okay? You're dumber than you look. If you come to the conclusion that Joseph was just, he's just in the right place at the right time, I tell you what, that is absolutely contrary to the context of this scripture. Joseph's environment was not just unfavorable, it was deplorable. Yeah. Remember, where is Joseph? Joseph's there in Egypt. G Egypt is a picture of the world because of the wickedness that resides there in the land of Egypt. Joseph's environment was not conducive of right decision making. If you read the story of Joseph in Genesis 39 and come to the conclusion that Joseph was just lucky, you're delusional. If anything, and I hope that you've paid attention as we've gone through the life of Joseph, will we all agree? If anything, Joseph's probably the most unlucky man in the history, in the history of mankind, let alone the Bible. Every turn, every path that Joseph takes, it feels like he's facing adversity. If anything, Joseph is very unlucky. Joseph was not a product of his environment, nor was he a product of his good fortune. Joseph was a product of his decision to follow after the things of God. Joseph was a product of his decision to follow after the, God, the Bible morality. Here it is. Joseph was a product of his character. Prosperity is not a factor of circumstance, but a factor of character. Letter B, write this down. Perspective comes from seeing God in every circumstance. Perspective comes from seeing God in every circumstance. One of the reasons that we identify so much with Joseph as Christians is not because of the highs that he reached, but the lows that he endeavored. The reason that we love to look at the life of Joseph is not because we identify with all the accomplishments that Joseph reached, but because of the lows that he endured. Okay, just let me ask you, how many of you have ever been second in command in the most powerful, uh, the most powerful fortress in all the world? How many have ever been second in command in Egypt? Nobody, right? Okay, how many of you have ever su suffered rejection and betrayal? How many of you have ever been falsely accused? We identify with Joseph because of the hardships he endured. Let me ask you this question. You identify with the hardships he endured. Do you identify with Joseph's perspective? Do I identify with the outlook that Joseph had on all the difficult circumstances that Joseph faced? What, were the, what, was, what was Joseph's perspective? Look at verse number two. And the Lord was with Joseph. Look at verse number three. 
And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper. Verse number five, and it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in the house and overseer uh, and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for whose sake? Joseph's sake. And the blessings of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. Look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Verse 23. It keeps going. The keeper of the prison looked not at anything under his hand because the Lord was with him. That's Joseph. And that which he did, the Lord made it to prosper. So from the outside looking in, as we have our perspective from the outside looking in at the life of Joseph, you know what we see? How big the hardships that Joseph faced. We see how big the dilemmas that Joseph faced. Man, the the people who he loved most, his own family, uh, how callous could they be to take Joseph, the one that's their own flesh and blood, and throw him into the prison, or excuse me, throw him into the pit and then sell him into slavery. We see the magnitude of the betrayal of Joseph's family. We see the magnitude of this temptation that comes in the life of Joseph. And man, it seems like, every, I mean, one step forward, two steps back with the life of Joseph. He's facing these catastrophic, these catastrophic temptations and difficult circumstances. We see again the unfairness of all of Joseph's difficulties and circumstances and the magnitude of Joseph's hardships. We see the size of Joseph's problems. What does Joseph see from his perspective? Not the size of his problems, but the size of his God. Joseph did not look at the size of his problems, but he knew that God was sovereign and God was in control. He knew that my God is bigger than all my problems, bigger than all my fears. God is bigger than any mountain that I can or cannot see, bigger than all my questions, bigger than anything. God is bigger than any mountain that I can or cannot see. In life, so often, we look at the size of our problems, we look at the magnitude of our problems, when all we have to do is look up, right? Our God is bigger than any kind of difficult circumstance that we could possibly face. Joseph teaches us that prosperity is not a factor of circumstances, but a factor of character. Joseph teaches us that perspective comes from seeing God in every circumstance. Thirdly, write this down. Joseph teaches us that present problems often prepare us for future promotions. Say that ten times fast. (laughs) Present problems often prepare us for future promotions. Did you know that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result? That's the definition of insanity. How many of you are on a diet? Hey, how many of you, be honest, how many of you have lost weight on your diet? Isn't that awesome? That's a good feeling. Can you give it to me? I really need some of it. I lo- actually, I think I lost weight while I was sick and I didn't have any to lose. I lost it out of my big head, but no. Uh, Again, how many of you, you've lost weight. It's a great accomplishment to reach. Uh, Let me ask this question. How many of you are going to put your diet on hold over the holiday season? Can I get a hallelujah? We're going to put it on pause for the month of December. Why? Because we're going to have a lot of good cooking, hopefully a lot of good food. We're going to indulge, and we're going to enjoy time with family over food, and then we're going to break and fellowship over some food, open presents over food, and then maybe we ought to get a snack after everything's said and done. And so we're going to put the pause on all of our, our, uh, our, our, our goals and our achievements that we're trying to reach in regards to our physicality, in regards to our weight. Put it on pause. Um, so January comes around, New Year's resolution. And uh, let me just ask you, would it be insane to say after being on a diet and losing weight, taking a break in December, and obviously you might put on a few pounds, but then coming into January and saying, I think I'm going to uh, forego continuing on my diet, but I fully expect to continue to lose weight. That's insane. By February, you're surprised that you've gained another 30 pounds because you continue to stuff your face with everything that is in front of you. That would be insane, right? We have to change our behavior in order to change the outcome. Again, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting a different result. That applies to every single area of life. Every single area of life, we can make that application of that basic principle. It is insane. Sorry for spitting on you. It is insane to think that if we continue to do the same thing, that we're going to glean a different result. Applies to every situation in life except following the plan of God. I want you to think about it. It applies to every situation in life except following the plan of God. In Joseph's story... Situational ethics would have convinced Joseph to change his approach to how he dealt with dilemmas based off of the fact that doing things by the Bible moral conviction had landed him in the pit and eventually it landed him in prison. Joseph 
you're insane. If you think that the fact that you were thrown into the pit and now you are in prison is not because of your unwillingness to not bend and, and not change your ways and your motivation to, to bend to the new moral code. Joseph, you're insane. You continue to do things by the Bible moral conviction and look where it's gotten you. Maybe you ought to change your ways. Listen, had Joseph changed his approach in the pit, he never would have seen the palace. God was preparing Joseph for the palace of Pharaoh by placing Joseph in the pit, putting him into the house of Potiphar, and having Joseph thrown into prison. And at any point in this process, if Joseph would have taken his eyes off the sovereign hand of God and started to adapt to the new moral code, he would have never been ready for the promotion that we're going to talk about next week. If Joseph would have said, you know what, I followed the Bible moral conviction, landed me in, in the pit. I continued to follow the Bible moral conviction, landed me in prison. I think maybe I need to make some adjustments and change my ways. Maybe I need to adapt and not do things so biblically, but rather let's do things a little bit more like the new moral code. Maybe that's going to change my outcome. It's insane for me to think that if I keep doing this, I'm never going to get to the position that God wants, me to, bring, wants to bring me to. Joseph didn't adapt. Joseph didn't adapt. We could say Joseph was a little bit insane. <laughs> Why? He understood that present problems often prepare us for future promotions. At the height of Joseph's prosperity in the house of Jacob, it couldn't compare to the palace. At the height of Joseph's prosperity in the house of Potiphar, couldn't compare to the palace. At the height of Joseph's prosperity there in the prison, which we're going to learn that he rises to prominence in the prison, couldn't compare to the palace. Joseph went through the gauntlet, taking hits on every side, but Joseph knew that although the pain was great, listen, the reward was greater. Joseph teaches us that prosperity is not a factor of circumstances, but a factor of character. Joseph teaches us that perspective comes from seeing God in every situation and circumstance. Joseph teaches us that present problems often prepare us for future promotion. Letter D, write this down. Joseph teaches us that righteousness is not always immediately rewarded. Righteousness is not always immediately rewarded. Question, how long was Joseph in Egypt before he was promoted to his position of authority in the uh, house of Potiphar? We talked about it last week, 10 years. Joseph is a slave for 10 years before he ever sees the bleak of his prosperity horizon. How long is Joseph in prison before he gets out of prison? Two years. Ten years there in the land of Egypt, two years there in the prison. You say, Lamar, what does that have to do with anything? What are you trying to say? Just because you choose to follow the plan of God today doesn't mean that prosperity awaits you on the morrow. Just because you choose to make the right decisions and follow the Bible moral code today doesn't mean that tomorrow you're going to wake up and God's going to sprinkle some magical dust and all of a sudden you're going to be CEO of your company. When you follow the Bible moral code, it might be years before you ever see the mountaintop. When you make the daily decision to follow after the Bible moral conviction, you might not see the reward for years to come. My dad's here, and he's a pastor in Houston, Texas. And uh, he's, uh, he's there in Houston, and there's another church that's in Houston, a good preacher friend of his, probably his best friend in the ministry. I don't know, maybe you've heard of him. His name is Joel Osteen. They're like this. They're best friends, right, Dad? I mean, you're tight. Joel Osteen is, uh, for those of you that don't know, who knows who Joel Osteen is? Okay, let me ask that question. Joel Osteen is a pastor, I use that term lightly, uh, of a mega church, biggest church I think in America, right there in Houston called Lakewood Church. Lakewood Church is in this, uh, the letters are this big, and it says Joel Osteen Ministries in letters this big. So that kind of gives you an idea of his motive. But anyways, uh, Joel Osteen has written several books. If you like them, they're in guest services. We sell them here. If you'd like to pick up a copy, no. We don't sell his books, but he's written several books, and I've never read any of his books. I've read some of the cliff notes. I've heard preachers made fun of Joel Osteen, and I'm not intending to do that. Yes, I am, but uh, Joel Osteen <laughs> has written several books, and again, I've never read his books, but I've seen the titles and read some of the cliff notes, and you know what the main point of, I think, most of his books, if not all of his books, you know what the main premise and the main point is? Instantaneous prosperity. 
instantaneous prosperity. You can live your best life now. That's the, that's the name of, I believe, his best-selling book, Your Best Life Now. And he, he kind of goes over in his books and begins to explain some of these principles that you can apply that have nothing to do with the Bible. But anyways, if you apply these basic principles, you're going to prosper. If you apply these basic principles and uh, you buy my book, I can tell you right now within 30 days, you're going to be the CEO of your company, that God's going to restore your marriage, God's going to do this and God's going to do that. And it's, I mean, seriously, if you've ever listened to him speak, for like five minutes, never references scripture, but the identity of his ministry is prosper now. Now you can have prosperity and not just like, oh, I found $5 on my way to Starbucks. No, like really unrealistic prosperity goals. Like you're gonna have major success. And everything that is in his, in his books has to do with instantaneous prosperity. Righteousness is not always immediately rewarded. You want to talk about instantaneous prosperity, why don't you go on the mission field and talk to some of these missionaries that have been on the field for 20, 30, 40 years and faithful to do the work of the Lord, but they only have a few converts to show for it. Ask them about instantaneous prosperity. Ask some of our missionaries that have been on the field for years that are only running 10 and 15 people in their church. Ask them about instantaneous prosperity. Righteousness is not always immediately rewarded. Uh, I'm, I'm so disappointed that I was not able to be here on Sunday, but uh, on Sunday we celebrated God's faithfulness to our, our church here in Wooden Valley Baptist Church over the years, and we brought recognition to Pastor Farinella, and uh, we're thankful. Are you thankful for your pastor? I hope you are. If you haven't told him that you love him, you ought to tell him that you love him, uh, uh, especially uh, for his faithfulness and investments over 33 years. By the way, that's very unheard of, and uh, my dad preached the message, and, and sometimes on Tuesday morning, and sometimes uh, men have the mentality that this is their ministry and they hold on for dear life. And uh, I'm thankful that his 33 years have been, have been progress, uh, progressing, 33 years of God's faithfulness and God progressing the ministry. He, he hasn't viewed it as his ministry, but the Lord's ministry. You ought to be thankful for that. Um, as I came in on Tuesday morning, I kind of just snuck in and I wanted to see what kind of day we had. And we don't base, uh, we don't keep count to try to see uh, if we had a good Sunday, it's because we had a lot of people here. But we like to keep track and see how many people are here. And on Sunday, we had 220, 230. Praise the Lord for that. Had a full house. Um, I was thinking about this though. 33 years here in uh, the Bothell Woodenville area, 33 years and we're running 200 and we can say praise the Lord, but do you know whose fault it is that we're not running five, six, seven, ten thousand? His fault. <laughs> it's Pastor Farinella's fault that we're not running. Come on, Pastor, it's, it's all your fault that we're not running in the five, in the thousands. And some of you who are a little bit more mature in the faith, you know that that actually is true. It is his fault that we're not running uh, a certain amount of people because his unwillingness to compromise and depart from the scripture and preach the whole counsel of God. Talked about it just a moment ago, but our preacher preaches from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. He preaches the entire counsel of God. You know what? That's cost us growing a church, but we have a healthy church. And we do have a big church. I'm thankful for the 200 people that were here. But in a very real sense... It could be easy for the man of God to become discouraged because of 33 years and the fact that uh, other ministers and other people in this area are running way more than we're running. But you know what he understood? Righteousness is not always immediately rewarded. Righteousness is not always immediately rewarded. When you endeavor to do the work of the Lord, it might take 33 years before you ever begin to see the benefits. Look at Psalms 105. Psalms 105, here's what Psalms 105 says about Joseph. Verse 17, it says, He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant, uh, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron until the time that he, uh, his word came. The word of the uh, Lord uh, tried him, verse 20. The king sent and loosed him, even the ruler of the people, and let him go. He made him lord over his house and the ruler of his substance to bind his uh, uh, princes at his pleasure and teach his senators wisdom. Listen, none of that happened in the life of Joseph overnight. We're not going to get to Genesis chapter number 50 in just a couple of days' time. It took years. It took years of Joseph's faithfulness to get to the position of the palace. Amen. When you follow the Bible moral conviction, it rarely gleans instantaneous results. It didn't for Joseph. But Joseph didn't care about living his best life now. Joseph did not care about instantaneous prosperity. Why? Joseph knew that righteousness is not always 
immediately rewarded. Joseph's decision cost Joseph fellowship with his family, prosperity in society, and even his reputation when he was falsely accused. But do you know what else it cost Joseph? His time. It cost Joseph his life's time. Let me ask you this question. What are the blessings of God going to cost you? How much are they worth to you? Lamar, I'd give up my fellowship with my family and friends to follow the plan of God. Wonderful. I'd give up my social status to follow the plan of God. Let me give you a golf clap. <laughs> Lamar, I'd give up my reputation to follow the plan of God. Amen. Those things are wonderful. What about your time? What about your time? And I, I'm not talking about time spent doing the work of God because that's going to take some time. And it's worth the time invested. I'm not talking about investing your time and your efforts into doing the work of God, but supposing, and according to our text, according to the life of Joseph, supposing that you invested your time and efforts into doing the will of God and you didn't see the benefits of your investments for years to come. Is it worth it? Righteousness is not always immediately rewarded. Matter of fact, in Joseph's situation, the more righteous Joseph portrayed himself to be, the less rewarded he felt. The new moral code gleans instantaneous results because reward itself is its motivation. But let me tell you, God's way takes time and it's gonna take your time. God's way takes faithfulness. God's way takes investment without instantaneous reward. You say, Lamar, I don't know if that investment is worth the cost. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17 says, For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. I'll read it again. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. I don't know, Lamar. I, I still don't, I, I'm not convinced. Give me an example. Look at verse 18. For Christ. Yes. Amen. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Joseph understood that because he didn't see the reward of God's faithful, or excuse me, of his faithfulness to the plan of God instantaneously, listen, it must have meant that the reward was greater than Joseph had originally anticipated. Joseph teaches us that prosperity is not a factor of circumstances, but a factor of character. Joseph teaches us that perspective comes from seeing God in every circumstance. Joseph teaches us that present problems often prepare us for future promotions. Joseph teaches us that righteousness is not always immediately rewarded. I almost ended here. I almost ended here. I began to think and how I was going to conclude and close the text, but the Lord prodded my heart, went back to our first lesson that we talked, talked about in week number one. I want you to write this down. Here's something else Joseph teaches us. Letter D, or excuse me, letter E. Joseph teaches us in Genesis chapter number 39 that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Yes, amen. Hold on a second, Lamar. You must be getting confused because Genesis chapter number 39, it's not years before Jesus ever comes onto the scene. We talked about it in week number one. It would be an absolute tragedy if we went through the life of Joseph and we begin to discover all the accomplishments and the rise to prominence in the life of Joseph and we didn't touch on the beautiful picture that Joseph paints of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Joseph is the greatest Old Testament picture of Jesus Christ, in my opinion, in all the Bible. Amen. Joseph was rejected by those whom he called family. Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. Joseph was thrown, a pit, uh, thrown into a pit and rose days later. Jesus was thrown into the grave and arose three days later. Joseph was falsely accused, and doing right cost him dearly. Jesus was falsely accused, and doing right cost him everything. Joseph went through difficulty after difficulty and didn't see the reward of his faithfulness until years had come and gone. Listen to this. Jesus still hasn't, seen, hasn't seen the reward of his faithfulness to the cross over 2,000 years ago, but that didn't stop him from dying for you and me. Jesus paid it all. What does it say? All to him I owe. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Joseph teaches us so many things and basic principles and applications that we can make. But if you forget everything else, remember, Joseph teaches us that Jesus is going to come in the New Testament. He's going to pay everything. How can we think biblically in such an unbiblical world? Remember, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. 
In closing, let's ask that question again. We asked it at the beginning. How can we think biblically in an unbiblical world? How many of you work a secular job? I think the teens are out in the, uh, in the annex for Amped Teen Night, but I can tell you right now, we've got a lot of our young people that are in the public school. And I don't need to convince anybody in this room that 2018, now going into 2019, the, lo- the world we live in today, wicked is an understatement. The kind of immorality and the filthiness that, I- I'm gonna be honest, some of you face that I don't even have to face, I tip my hat to you because I don't think that I would have it in myself to be able to think biblically in such an unbiblical world. How can we think biblically in such an unbiblical world? Remember that truth is always right, no matter where, when, or how. It is never right to do wrong in order to get a chance to do right. Prosperity is not a factor of circumstances, but a factor of character. Perspective comes from seeing God in every circumstance. Present problems often prepare us for future promotions. Righteousness, it's not always easily, or excuse me, it's not always immediately rewarded. And if you forget everything else, if you don't make any of those applications, or maybe you're in some, some, some of the deepest, darkest circumstances that you've ever had to face in your life, and you can't make those basic applications, remember that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And if we can wrap our minds around the sacrifice that Jesus made and we can fall in love with uh, the word of God that Jesus preserved throughout the centuries and has given to us his love letter to man, it becomes very easily, in spite of all the filth and the disgusting and the nasty world that we live in, it can become easier, not easy, but easier to think biblically in such an unbiblical world. We looked last week at the temptations that Joseph faced, prosperity and purity, and they were great temptations to face. And we learned last week, Luke chapter number 17, verse number one, it doesn't say that you're probably going to face offenses and that you might face offenses. It says you're going to face offenses. Temptations will come. Difficult circumstances, if you're not in them now, get ready because tomorrow they're coming. So the question can be asked, how can we think biblically in such an unbiblical world? Apply these principles that Joseph applied. And if nothing else, remember that Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. So let's stand. We'll have a brief moment of invitation. It's going to kind of be a dual invitation. If the Lord speaks to you, you can come forward. I'd encourage you to deal with what the Lord is dealing with your heart about. And if the Lord's not dealing with you about anything, then we're going to go ahead and go right into our prayer time and pray for these requests that were mentioned. And we can uh, uh, depart and go ahead and pray for the requests that uh, we mentioned just a moment ago. Let's say a word of prayer. Heavenly Father.